0: If one ventures a word with you, will you be offended? But who can keep from speaking? Who indeed? Let's pray. God, may you open up our hearts and our minds to listen to your word to us today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I've brought to you today uh, probably one of my very favorite articles um, that I've ever read uh, from the LA Times in 2013. And on the, um, the cream-colored piece of paper in your bulletin, uh, it's printed out there on um, the one side with the circles on it. This chart was uh, developed by a woman named Su- Susan Silk, And uh, she and uh, Barry Goldman wrote this article based on an experience that Susan had when she had breast cancer. And uh, what happened was that she had surgery for her cancer and a woman from a colleague from her work wanted to come see her. And Susan said, you know, I'm sorry, I'm just not up for visitors right now. Do you know that feeling? (laughs) And this woman said, well, you know, it's not all about you. <laughs> and Susan said, really? <laughs> My breast cancer is not all about me? <laughs> and this brought up this chart, which um, is probably, as we, our new mission statement, building a more loving world, this is probably one of the biggest gifts I can give you as a tool to go out and build a more loving world in, in your um, areas that you live and in your relationships. The premise of it is that the person in the center of the circle, that little dot in the center of the circle, is the person who is going through the struggle, the person with the cancer, the person who's dying, the person with the grief, whatever that is, the person who's been in the hurricane, the the person with the loss is in the center of the circle. And then in that next circle is like immediate family, those people most closest to them, most closest uh, to them. And then goes, you know, maybe extended family and close friends and then acquaintances and then colleagues. You get get the impression of these circles, right? And the principle is this. The person in the center of the circle can say whatever they want, whenever they want. If they're mad, if they're you know, don't want to talk, whatever they want to do, they have that right in the center of the circle because it is their suffering. But everyone in the concentric circles going out can only dump, can only say what they need to say, can only get things off their chest by going out of the circle, not by going back in. Someone is closer into the circle than you Say you're the best friend of the couple who's going through a terrible loss, you comfort them and you dump your struggles out the circles. Does that make sense? This is very helpful in those moments when you're wondering what to say or these moments when you're feeling affected by someone else's struggle to think dump out, comfort in. Dump out, comfort in. When you are talking to a person, it says down below, in a ring smaller than yours, someone closer to the center of the crisis, the goal is to help. Listening is often more helpful than talking, but if you're going to open your mouth, ask yourself if what you are about to say is likely to provide comfort and support. If it isn't, don't say it. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered, if one ventures a word with you, will you be offended? But who can keep from speaking? This morning we began this three-week uh, series in Job, and there's a lot in this book. I mean, already in the in the short well, the short bit of the book that jo- that Chris read this morning, um, there's already some problems. Like, why does he call his wife a foolish woman? Is one, especially with all our Me Too um, movement and conversation happening. Um, another is why would God allow this to happen to Job, and what what is suffering, and how do we make sense of it? And we're going to talk about that more those big issues more in the next couple of weeks, but this morning I really want to focus on these friends, because actually out of the uh, 42 chapters in the book of Job, 38 of them are devoted to a dialogue between Job and his friends. 38 chapters out of 42 are just this conversation back and forth where his friends are trying to make sense of his suffering and telling him how he should think about his suffering. Now initially they follow the rules of our our circles perfectly. They come in, they see Job in, in such suffering, and they, and they sit with him and throw ashes on themselves and sit on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights and do not speak. I mean, that is a good friend. But then Job begins to speak, and Job uh, curses the day that he was born. He says, I don't even know why I'm alive. And then we have... This Eliphaz, who says, who can keep from speaking? His friends, um, his friends cannot stay silent, and they feel this need to, to explain to him what his suffering is about and how he should respond. Eliphaz, who speaks first, declares that, that he, if he was suffering, he would have great faith. As for me, I would seek God, and to God I would commit my cause self-righteous much. God does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends water on the fields. Now what's interesting to me when I read, I've read Job throughout my life, sometimes I'll land in the midst of a passage and I can't tell who's speaking. Because it's such beautiful theological prose, such beautiful pronouncements of faith. I mean, these men are so well thought through in how they're responding to Job. They're not just flying off the top of their head or giving him easy answers. They have a deep and profound theology and way they understand suffering. Bildad, then, who speaks second, he kind of holds hope for Job's future. God will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouts of joy. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame, and the tent of the wicked will be no more. And then Zophar, who speaks third, all my papers fall, Zophar, who speaks third, reminds Job that actually God is gracious. Know Know that then God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. If you direct your heart rightly, you will stretch out your hands towards God. Each of these speeches is so carefully thought out. They could be written by any seminary student, (laughs) giving a reason why bad things happen to good people. I'm wondering if you've heard some of these same efforts at comfort, this encouraging the person who is struggling to, to keep the faith, keep going telling someone that in the end it will all be okay, so, so just, you know, keep on keeping on. Reminding them that it could be worse. You know, just think about so-and-so over there, and they, they have it a lot worse than you do. Or extolling the goodness of God in the midst of their suffering. I mean, I know you're, str- you're struggling, but, but let's focus on God's goodness. And Job consistently throughout the book, person after person, speech after speech, refuses to have any of it. He says, those who withhold kindness from a friend forsake the fear of the Almighty. So Job invites them to, to first of all, stop speaking, to sit with him. And then he calls out the violence of their attempts to set him straight. He says this, you see my calamity and are afraid. Job says to his friends, you see my calamity and are afraid. And I think with that, he gets right to the heart of what's going on for his friends. His calamity, his sickness, his loss, which we didn't even read this morning, of his children and all of his property, this devastation of his life is most threatening to his friends because they're afraid that that it might happen to them, that life maybe really is that random, that it's possible that they also could lose their children and lose everything they have without having done anything to deserve it. Daniel Berrigan wrote this, They must mask their dread with bravado. And another commentator, John Holbert, said, Eliphaz must destroy Job. If not, Eliphaz himself may be destroyed. He is fighting for his theological life. If you can lose everything for no apparent reason, if God um, isn't pulling the levers based on who is deserving and who is not, then we feel very exposed in the world then it's hard to know to know how to find our confidence and so we so easily want to make sense of another person's suffering we want to find a reason why they are suffering, either God in God or in something they've done or in something in the circumstances or you know those Californians, they shouldn't move to you know, the Bay Area anyways because of all those earthquakes. Um, <laughs> whatever it is, we find ways to, to explain away another person's suffering. And our capacity, I do believe that our capacity to be with those who are suffering without explaining, without advising, without trying to fix, is in direct relationship to our capacity to be with our own suffering, to be with the potential of our suffering, and how we allow God to be with us in the suffering of this world. So Job's friend's response is really more about their struggle, their anxiety, their fear than it is about Job's suffering himself. And and back to the circles, isn't that so often what happens? We We want to put an explanation or put something on somebody because of our own fear and our own inability to be with suffering. Encountering suffering is difficult for all of us. I mean, I find this happening to me all the time. When something terrible happens, sometimes my first response, more often than I would like, is not to just be compassionate. My first response is almost a, how can I make sense of this? How How can I separate myself from the fact that this may happen to me? How can I get a little space and find someone to blame? And yet the invitation, I believe, in in Job is for us to learn to be with another without having to explain. To ask ourselves questions about our own theology. Do we believe that God is only there to fix our problems and make our lives easier? Do we think God always just gives us what we deserve? I've had days where... um, You know I think well gosh I could get you know I could get in an accident today and I think well that wouldn't happen because think about my long to-do list and all the important things I have to do today I mean certainly God wouldn't let something happen to me today right and actually this week I don't know if some of you saw on PV Forum um, there was a note about a woman with a a St. Bernard who almost got hit on the road right out here because of someone trying to pass and that was me um, I was out there walking and someone, and I thought, wow, well, that would have been a really bad day to have had something happen to me because wow. my list is really long and, and, you know, but do we believe God works that way? Does, is God looking at our to-do list? Is God looking um, at what we deserve and, and making a decision based on that? And then another question is, does our faith extend beyond our well-being? Where is our faith when everything isn't going well? And what is that faith? When I uh, was 22, I lost a very good friend of mine who was um, killed. And um, I I had been in the church all my life, I had been a Christian most of my life. Um, But I remember in the depths of that pain, in the depths of the questioning, sensing that there was like almost this hand at the bottom of my suffering that wasn't going to let me go. And I've, I've held on to that over and over and over, that no matter what the questions are and how unexplainable life is, that, that, that there's this hand that is holding me. How do we be that deep in our faith to know that hand that is holding us? God dis- Job discovers in his suffering that God does not give answers, but that God is present with him. Job's healing comes not in making sense of it, not in finding the perfect theological rationale. His healing comes in honest questions, in the capacity to be angry, in the being with the suffering, and in silence. So this week, I just invite you to pay attention to your responses to suffering. As you read, look at the news and see, um, you know, the, the things that are happening, what's, what wells up within you? And how can you just step back for a moment to be with it in a different way? What might your response tell you about how you understand God and how you understand suffering? We're all invited to, to sit with suffering, to, to let it be because God sits with us and doesn't try to fix us. A woman named Jan Richardson, um, who I read a blessing of hers last week in our service, but her husband Gary uh, d- died very suddenly uh, recently and she just uh, published this book of Cure for Sorrow, a book of blessings for grief. So, I'd like to read you this blessing that she offers after her husband's death. Do not tell me there will be a blessing in the breaking, that it will ever be a grace to wake into this life so altered, this world so without. Do not tell me of the blessing that will come in the absence. Do not tell me that what does not kill me will make me strong, or that God will not send me more than I can bear. Do not tell me that this will make me more compassionate, more loving, more holy. Do not tell me this will make me more grateful for what I had. Do not tell me I was lucky. Do not even tell me there will be a blessing. Give me instead the blessing of breathing with me. Give me instead the blessing of sitting with me when you cannot think of what to say. Give me instead the blessing of asking about him, how we met, or what I love most about the life we have shared. Ask for a story or tell me one, because a story is finally the only place on earth he lives now. If you could know what grace lives in such a blessing, you would never cease to offer it. If you could glimpse the solace and sweetness that abide there, you would never wonder if there was a blessing you could give that would be better than this. The blessing of your own heart opened and beating with mine.